Welcome to another lecture in the MSK Cornerstone course. This is a continuation of our sports medicine series. In this lecture, we will cover impingement, both subacromial and subcoracoid, calcific tendonitis, biceps tendonitis, and rotator cuff pathology, including the entire spectrum of disease from tendonitis to full-blown rotator cuff arthropathy. This lesson is a huge undertaking, and I imagine one day it will eventually be revised into two separate lectures. So for now, let's dive right in. Let's begin by briefly touching on an uncommon diagnosis, subcoracoid impingement. This is defined as impingement between the coracoid and lesser tuberosity. The position in which this occurs is when the arm is adducted, flexed, and internally rotated. This can occur if the patient has a long lateral coracoid process or posterior capsular tightness. To review, what three muscles attach to the coracoid process? The coracobrachialis, the pectoralis minor, and short head of the biceps. What ligaments attach to the coracoid process? The coracohumeral ligament, coracoacromial ligament, and coracoclavicular ligaments. And what makes up the coracoclavicular ligaments? The conoid and trapezoid. How far away from the distal clavicle is the conoid ligament? 4.5 centimeters. And how far away is the trapezoid? 3 centimeters. What happens if you resect the coracoacromial ligament and the patient has a massive rotator cuff tear? They may develop anterior superior scape. And what rotator cuff muscle inserts onto the lesser tuberosity, which is implicated in subcoracoid impingement? The subscapularis, which is innervated by the upper and lower subscapular nerves. Okay, so how do patients with subcoracoid impingement present? Patients tend to have pain localized to the anterior shoulder that is worse with adduction, flexion, and internal rotation. Sometimes they will have pain with direct palpation over the coracoid. What other condition is generally exacerbated with adduction of the arm across the body? AC joint arthritis or arthrosis. So when formulating your differential, it's important to localize the pain to either the coracoid or AC joint. In terms of subcoracoid impingement, imaging studies may be useful. However, specialized views are needed to obtain a correct diagnosis. Radiographic studies may show a decreased coracohumeral distance. A specialized CT scan with the arm adducted and flexed so it lies across the chest may show a decreased coracohumeral distance. Normal coracohumeral distance is 8.7 millimeters in an adducted arm and 6.7 millimeters in a flexed arm. Any distance less than 6 would be considered abnormal. An MRI may also be useful to evaluate for any rotator cuff pathology. Axial cuts may be analyzed to assess the coracohumeral distance. So how do we treat patients we've diagnosed with subcoracoid impingement? As always, the first-line treatment includes non-operative conservative measures, including rest, ice, anti-inflammatories, and possibly a corticosteroid injection. If the patient failed conservative measures, they may undergo an arthroscopic coracoplasty and possibly a subscapularis repair, depending on any prevalent rotator cuff pathology. The goal of the coracoplasty is to achieve at least 7 millimeters of distance between the coracoid and the subscapularis to decrease the chance of impingement. Alright, let's move on now to a more common diagnosis, subacromial impingement. Subacromial impingement is also known as outlet impingement. This is thought to be one of the most common causes of shoulder pain. It is associated with a type 3 acromial morphology or a hook type acromion. Patients with an osochromanale also suffer from subacromial impingement. What are the three ossification centers of the acromion? The meta, the mesa, and the preacromion. 
and where does it most commonly fail to ossify between the meta and meso acromion? Remember the three types of acromiomorphology again are flat, curved, and hooked, which are seen on the supraspinatus outlet view radiograph and based on the Bigliani classification. So how do patients with subacromial impingement present? These patients will typically have pain with overhead activities and may have trouble sleeping at night secondary to pain. What are the most common physical exam findings? Patients will have a positive job, hawking, and near impingement sign and impingement test. And what is the difference between the impingement sign and impingement test? The impingement sign is positive if there is pain with forward flexion beyond 90 degrees. The impingement test is positive if a subacromial injection relieves that pain. So how do we work up patients that we believe are suffering from subacromial impingement? Well, as with most pathology, we start with plain radiographs of the shoulder. This allows us to assess for any arthritic change, evaluate the acromiohumeral distance, remember that normal is between 7 and 14 millimeters, and assess the acromiomorphology. What is the best view to evaluate for an osacromanale? an axillary view. MRI is, of course, the most useful study for evaluating for any rotator cuff pathology. First-line treatment for subacromial impingement is an extended course of conservative therapy. Non-operative modalities include anti-inflammatory medication, subacromial injections, and physical therapy. Physical therapy should focus on rotator cuff and periscapular strengthening. If the patient fails four to six months of conservative treatment, they may require an acromioplasty. The influence of workers' compensation claim on acromioplasty has been tested in the past, and obviously, as with any procedure with these patients, they tend to do much, much, much worse. The goal of an acromioplasty is to remove any spurs and increase the acromiohumeral distance. So again, what is the normal acromiohumeral distance between 7 and 14 millimeters? Remember, if the patient has an osacromanale, not to simply excise the fragment, as this may lead to deltoid dysfunction. Instead, they require a two-stage procedure with an initial fusion followed by a subsequent acromioplasty. Another technical pearl to keep in mind is if the patient has a massive rotator cuff tear, they may develop anterior superior escape if you resect the corcoacromial ligament during acromioplasty, so it is important to preserve this structure. Let's move on now to calcific tendonitis. Calcific tendonitis frequently occurs in women between the ages of 30 and 60 and has been associated with endocrinopathies, including diabetes and hypothyroidism. It occurs in three phases of calcification, including the precalcific phase, the calcific phase, and postcalcific phase. During the precalcific phase, there is metaplasia of the tendon. In the calcific phase, it is divided into a formative phase, resting phase, and resorptive phase. The formative phase, the calcium develops, and during the resorptive phase, it is known to be most painful. This is because phagocytic cells attempt to resorb the calcium deposits, stimulating both an inflammatory process and vascular infiltration into the area. Patients with calcific tendonitis have a remarkably similar presentation as those with subacromial impingement. In fact, the two disease processes are frequently occurring simultaneously. Plain radiographs may show calcium deposits located within the tendon, frequently within the supraspinatus tendon. Calcium deposits can further be delineated with MRI or an ultrasound. Calcium has a low signal intensity on T1 and T2 weighted images, so it will look dark on both T1 and T2. It also appears hyperechoic on ultrasound. A trial of at least six months of conservative therapy is warranted in all patients presenting with symptomatic calcific tendonitis. 
They should receive anti-inflammatories, physical therapy, and possibly a steroid injection. About half to three-quarters of all patients resolve with conservative treatment alone by six months. Patients have also shown resolution of symptoms with shockwave therapy and ultrasound-guided needling techniques as well. Needling is typically done during the resorptive phase. If the patient fails conservative treatment, they may need to undergo an arthroscopic resection of the calcium deposit. In doing so, the patient may also require a rotator cuff repair in the area of the calcium deposit resection. All right, let's move on now to the real meat of this talk, rotator cuff tears. Before we begin, let's review some pertinent anatomy. What four muscles make up the rotator cuff? The supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres minor, and subscapularis. What innervates the supraspinatus and infraspinatus? The suprascapular nerve. What innervates teres minor? The axillary nerve. What innervates the subscapularis? The upper and lower subscapular nerves. Where do the upper and lower subscapular nerves originate in the brachial plexus? The posterior cord. Where does the axillary nerve branch from the plexus? It is a terminal branch of the posterior cord. Where does the suprascapular nerve originate? Off the superior trunk comprised of C5 and C6. What structure originates off the superglenoid tubercle and superior labrum? The long head of the biceps. So what does the rotator cuff do and what is a force couple? Well, simply put, force coupling around the glenohumeral joint keeps the humeral head centered on the glenoid. In the transverse plane, the teres minor and infraspinatus balance the opposing pole of the subscapularis to keep the head centered. In the coronal plane, the inferior cuff musculature balances the superior pole created by the deltoid to prevent proximal humeral migration. This is what's referred to as dynamic stability. The cuff acts to center the humeral head on the glenoid, which allows the deltoid to function without changing the fulcrum of the humerus. The goal of any surgical intervention is an attempt to restore the force couples and recreate the dynamic stability. So what are the borders of the rotator interval? Medially, the base of the corticoid. Superiorly, the anterior edge of supraspinatus. Inferiorly, the superior edge of subscapularis. And the lateral apex is the transverse humeral ligament. So what does the transverse humeral ligament do? It stabilizes the biceps within its groove. And again, what are the contents of the rotator interval? It contains the capsule, superior glenohumeral ligament, the biceps tendon, and the coracohumeral ligament. What are the rotator crescent and cable? The rotator cable can be easily identified arthroscopically as a thick bundle of fibers running perpendicular to the supraspinatus and spanning the insertion of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus. The rotator crescent lies lateral to the cable and it is a thin sheet of tendon made up of the distal portions of the supra and infraspinatus tendons. Now rotator cuff tears can involve singular or multiple tendons. When we think about tear patterns, we group them into tears of the subscapularis or tears involving the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, or teres minor, or the sit muscle group. What type of impingement pattern might you see with a subscapularis tear? Subcorticoid impingement. And what type of impingement pattern might you see with a tear of the sit muscle group? subacromial. So tears of the supraspinatus and infraspinatus are far more common than tears of the subscapularis. Furthermore, we analyze these tears in the setting in which they occurred and the patient presentation. Chronic degenerative tears are typically seen in older patients and tend to involve the supraspinatus, infraspinatus, or teres minor. Younger patients may sustain rotator cuff avulsion injuries or acute tears. 
If a patient older than 40 years old presents with an anterior shoulder dislocation, what concomitant injury must you be concerned about? And it's a rotator cuff tear. Rotator cuff tears in the setting of dislocations in younger patients are much less common. All right, so how do patients with rotator cuff tears present? Patients will typically come in complaining of pain and variable amounts of weakness. Pain may be worse with overhead activities and may awaken them at night from sleep. Acute tears may present following a trauma or dislocation. Massive tears may present with a severe loss in active motion and strength around the shoulder with a condition known as pseudoparalysis. Pseudoparalysis is frequently seen concurrently with rotator cuff arthropathy, which is a condition we will discuss shortly. What are some of the classic tests that we do when evaluating for the strength of rotator cuff musculature? We test for the supraspinatus in the Job position or resisted forward elevation within the scapular plane. We test external rotation strength with the patient's arm at their side to test the infraspinatus. The subscapularis is tested with internal rotation strength with the patient's arm at their side. And Terry's minor strength is tested with the arm at 90 degrees of abduction and external rotation. What physical exam findings will we see with proximal biceps tendonitis? The patient will have tenderness over the biceps groove, a positive speed test, a positive Jurgensen's test. These patients may have anterior shoulder pain with clicking during abduction and external rotation, indicating biceps subluxation medially out of the groove. What characteristic deformity is seen after a proximal biceps tendon rupture? The Popeye deformity or distal retraction of the biceps muscle belly. These patients may also have some bruising tracking down their arm. Okay, so let's go over some imaging studies. As with any pathology, we will start with plain radiographs. This allows us to look for signs of arthritis, calcific tendonitis, any proximal humeral migration, and any acromial pathology. If the patient has a suspected rotator cuff tear and also has a pacemaker, what is a possible study we can do in lieu of an MRI? An arthrogram. During an arthrogram, dye is injected into the glenohumeral joint and a plain radiograph is obtained. If the dye leaks from the glenohumeral joint into the subacromial space, a rotator cuff tear should be suspected. MRI is the most commonly used study to diagnose rotator cuff pathology. However, in patients older than 60 years of age, there is a very high false positive rate. Over half of patients, approximately 55%, over the age of 60, with no shoulder pain whatsoever, will have a rotator cuff tear. MRI is very good at defining the tear morphology, as well as any muscle atrophy. What would you suspect if you saw the biceps tendon subluxed medially out of its groove? A subscapularis tear. MRI will also allow you to evaluate for any proximal biceps tendonitis, as you will see increased fluid surrounding the biceps tendon, particularly on axial T2 images. Ultrasound is growing in popularity as an imaging modality in the diagnosis of rotator cuff tears. It is cheap and allows for dynamic testing, such as assessments for biceps subluxation, and it has been shown to have similar sensitivity and specificity for diagnosing rotator cuff tears. However, it is limited significantly in diagnosing any other intraarticular shoulder pathology, and it is highly user-dependent with a steep learning curve. All right, so we've performed our appropriate history and physical examination and ordered our imaging studies. What is it that we hope to see, and how will we classify the tears? In terms of tear size, you will frequently see classified into small, medium, large, and massive tears. Small being between 0 and 1 centimeters, medium between 1 and 3, large being between 3 and 5, and massive tears involving greater than 5 centimeters of tendon. 
Sagittal cuts on a T1 MRI scan can also be useful to classify the extent of fatty atrophy of the musculature. This is the Goudier classification. This is classified from 0 to 4, 0 being normal, 1 being some fatty streaks within the muscle, 2 having more muscle than fat, 3 showing equal amounts of fat and muscle, and 4 being more fat than muscle. Chronic tears will exhibit more fatty degeneration than an acute tear. Partial tears are classified as either bursal or articular-sided tears. Articular-sided tears tend to be more common, while bursal-sided tears tend to be more symptomatic. Grading of the tears and the treatment is based upon the depth. Shallower tears may simply be debrided, whereas deeper tears may require completion of the tear and fixation. An articular-sided tear greater than 6 mm or a bursal-sided tear greater than 3 mm need to be considered to undergo completion of tear and a rotator cuff repair. Remember that, 6 millimeters for articular and 3 millimeters for bursal. Arthroscopically or on imaging, it is also helpfully, arthroscopically or on imaging, it is also helpful to define the tear shape. Typically, we define these as crescent-shaped, U-shaped, L-shaped, and massive. U-shaped tears are similar to crescent tears, although the apex of the tear may be retracted to the level of the glenoid. For the purposes of fixation, crescent-shaped tears are generally mobile and may be directly repaired to the rotator cuff footprint with minimal tension. U or L-shaped tears may require side-to-side -side approximation, known as margin convergence, to bring the tear leaflets together. Massive tears may require more substantial mobilization techniques, such as an interval slide to allow for reduction into an acceptable anatomic location. So now we've diagnosed our patient on history, physical examination, and imaging with a rotator cuff tear. So how are we going to treat them? Several factors need to be considered when formulating a treatment plan. The age of the patient, how symptomatic the patient is with regard to level of pain, loss of function, loss of strength, any medical comorbidities the patient may possess, and their activity level. They must understand that the recovery from a rotator cuff tear is a long and difficult rehabilitation process. Furthermore, the characteristics of the tear, including the tear size, the level of retraction, any muscle atrophy, also need to be considered. Whether or not the tear is acute or chronic is also considered, because the role of chronicity plays in the likelihood that the tear will heal. As always, non-operative is the first line of treatment for rotator cuff tears. The only caveat to this would be an acute tear in a younger patient. A partial thickness tear will usually also undergo a trial of conservative treatment. Physical therapy will focus on rotator cuff and periscapular strengthening exercises. Subacromial injections may also provide the patient with significant and lasting relief. Alright, so let's talk about how we approach treating these tears. Most surgeons prefer to fix rotator cuff tears arthroscopically. However, in the setting of some massive retracted tears, some surgeons will still perform this with a mini open approach. In the case of partial tears, remember that any bursal sided tear deeper than 3 mm or articular sided tear deeper than 6 mm may undergo completion of the tear and rotator cuff repair. Many surgeons will continue to perform a subacromial decompression during the rotator cuff repair. The debate between arthroscopic, open, or mini-open rotator cuff repairs has shown that outcomes are equivalent between all three procedures. The basic philosophy behind rotator cuff repair is to restore the tendon to its anatomic footprint. This thereby restores the force coupling around the shoulder and decreases pain. Double row repairs have been shown to have a more anatomic recreation of the footprint. Other techniques such as margin convergence and interval slides may also be utilized to mobilize the retracted tendons. 
An inflamed biceps tendon can be treated with either tenodesis or tenotomy. Tenodesis may result in improved cosmesis and decreased arm cramping relative to the tenotomy. However, that is up for debate. Currently, there is a lack of evidence to recommend one procedure over the other. What is the comma sign? The coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments form a complex that marks the superior lateral margin of the subscapularis tendon when torn. When viewed arthroscopically, this can help to identify the extent of medial retraction of the subscapularis tendon. So remember, the coracohumeral and superior glenohumeral ligaments form a complex that marks the superior lateral margin of the subscapularis tendon. This is known as the comma sign. Now how about tendon transfers for irreparable rotator cuff tears? Massive irreparable rotator cuff tears may undergo tendon transfers. In the setting of a chronic subscapularis tear, the pectoralis major tendon can be transferred under the conjoined tendon onto the lesser tuberosity to recreate the pull of the subscapularis. This should be done by transferring the tendon deep to the conjoined tendons, but superficial to the musculocutaneous nerve. Otherwise, you run the risk of putting too much tension across the musculocutaneous nerve. What deficits might you see with a musculocutaneous nerve palsy? It might lead to weakness in elbow flexion, supination, and decreased sensation across the lateral forearm. And in the setting of a massive retracted supraspinatus and infraspinatus tear, the latissimus dorsi may be transferred and inserted onto the greater tuberosity to recreate the external rotation and elevation pull of the rotator cuff muscles. This procedure requires an intact subscapularis. Postoperatively, it is felt that it takes about 8 to 12 weeks for the rotator cuff to heal to bone, and therefore most patients will be limited to passive range of motion during the early postoperative period. Because the rotator cuff tendons are relatively avascular, the majority of the vascularity to the repaired tendon is provided by holes drilled within the greater tuberosity. At about three months, patients will begin strengthening exercises. Finally, let's talk about complications. As with anything, the older you are, the less chance you have to heal. Patients over the age of 65 have been shown to be at risk for failing to heal the repair. Infection is also very rare, however it does occur and it usually presents in a delayed or chronic fashion and is frequently caused by propionobacterium acnes. Other complications include stiffness or injury to the axillary or suprascapular nerve. If a subacromial decompression has been performed, it is important to preserve the coracoacromial ligament to prevent the chance of developing anterior superior escape. Lastly, let's address rotator cuff arthropathy. Following a massive rotator cuff tear and the loss of dynamic stabilization effect of the rotator cuff, patients may develop instability, which leads to proximal humeral head migration, arthritis, and pseudoparesis. This typically occurs in females in their dominant shoulder. Patients present with pain and weakness, and they may have significant loss of motion, muscular atrophy, and anterior superior escape of the humeral head during arm elevation. Plain radiographs will show acromial acetabularization with proximal migration of the humeral head and superior glenoid wear or erosion. You may also be able to appreciate anterior superior escape of the humeral head on axillary radiographs. If those findings are present on plain radiographs, an MRI is not necessary for the diagnosis. As with any orthopedic problem, conservative management may be attempted, but for testing purposes, there has been much detail in reverse total shoulder arthroplasty. Hemiarthroplasty can be performed and provide decent pain relief. However, an intact rotator cuff is necessary to stabilize the humeral head, 
and therefore these patients will not have a good functional improvement in terms of range of motion. Total shoulder arthroplasty is contraindicated because of eccentric loading of the glenoid component and will lead to early loosening and failure. This is known as the rocking horse phenomenon. The longevity of a reverse total shoulder arthroplasty is not yet well defined and therefore it should be reserved for elderly low demand patients. Okay, so that concludes our talk on impingement calcific tendonitis, bicep tendonitis, and rotator cuff pathology. As always, please check back for frequent updates and improvements to the lecture series. 